Please stand with me for the reading of the scriptures. Tonight, beginning with Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Luke 23, starting at verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison. For an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Amen. Please turn now to Psalm 59. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. 
For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. Kill them not lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city, They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Amen. You may be seated. In our house, we have a series of picture books that we especially love. It's actually a series I grew up with uh, about a character named Adam Raccoon. Um, It's written and illustrated by a man named Glenn Keane. Um, They're sort of allegorical stories, I guess. So Adam Raccoon kind of represents every uh, kind of an ordinary Christian, every man kind of character. And then there's the mighty lion named King Aaron, who represents Jesus sort of in the stories. And they're very well done, very insightful. One of the books is called Adam Raccoon in Lost Woods. And in that story, the Adam character at one point gets separated from King Aaron um, in these deep, dark woods. He gets lost. And actually, it's, it's quite scary. Um, all of a sudden, he hears this growling all around him. And he discovers that he is surrounded by wolves. And there's this one page showing the wolves pouncing on him. Their teeth are bared and their tongues are hanging out. There's slobber coming out of their mouths. And it is over the top, genuinely scary. So scary that I almost wonder if I should read it to my kids at bedtime. Except for what happens next. Because on the one-page spread, you have these wolves with these intense, ferocious expressions on their faces, leaping at Adam in the center of the circle, and he's covering his eyes and just bracing to be eaten. But nothing happens. And Adam peeks out between his fingers, and on the next page spread, you see a 
dramatically contrasting picture. You see those same wolves with the most frightened faces and body language, cowering backwards, just melting away, cringing from the center of the circle. They're, they're, they're timid. And Adam can't figure out what made the difference. It certainly wasn't Adam. And then suddenly he feels on his shoulder the paw of the mighty lion wrapping around him and leading him to safety. This sermon I've entitled in the bulletin, Among the Dogs. That image of Adam encircled by those snarling and leaping wolves uh, came to mind for me as I thought about Psalm 59. I'd like us to look at this psalm in three parts then. First, prayer in distress, me verses 1 through 5. Second, protection from the dogs, and that's the central image, really, of this psalm, verses 6 through 15. And then third, praise for God's deliverance, verses 16 and 17. Okay, so first is the prayer in distress. And for quite a while now, we've been in this extended section of, of the psalms where the headings at the beginning of, this, of each one um, connect these various prayers to some particular events in the life of David, the king. Um, That's not true of all the psalms. You can't connect every psalm to some particular historical moment in David's life, but some of them you can. Um, And here, the heading connects this prayer with the time in 1 Samuel chapter 19, where Saul has just tried, again, to uh, pin David to the wall with his spear, and he misses Um, And David is able to get away, go home to his house. But verse 11 of that chapter says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. That's what's being referenced here in the heading of Psalm 59. Okay, so think about the context of that chapter. Earlier in the chapter, Jonathan, Saul's son, had convinced Saul uh, temporarily Um, that David was not a threat, that David was actually loyal to Saul. And so um, he actually got Saul to promise just a few verses earlier at the beginning of the chapter, as the Lord lives, Saul, Saul swears by the covenant name of God, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. But that dramatic oath Saul swears is very short lived. He does not keep it. He does not keep it. Um, very soon, David has another big success on the battlefield, and so Saul gets jealous again of David's successes. And at first, it comes out uh, as another kind of sudden, impulsive kind of violence, throwing the spear at him um, when David's playing music for him. But by this time, it has now deepened to, again, that that cold-blooded resolution to arrest David and have him executed. And so the messengers are watching the house, and Michael, David's wife, tells him, listen, David, if you don't escape with your life tonight, she says, tomorrow you will be killed. Remember, she's Saul's daughter. Kind of, she knows what's going on. She knows her dad and how serious this is. And so she lets David down, actually, through a window uh, so that he can escape. Um, he, he gets out that way where Saul's agents are not looking for him. 
And it's a kind of a, a little bit of a comical story where she uh, hides a statue under the blankets so that if anybody looks into the house, it looks like David's still lying there in bed. It's like a decoy. And so David's able to get away. And sure enough, the next day, Saul tells the messengers, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. But of course, they discover the, the trick and David gets away. Okay, so um, I'll tell all this story so that we can think a little bit about David's kind of state of mind at this point. Um, up until now, David has kind of known that things are not quite right with Saul, but only now has David realized that he actually has to run away from his own house, that he can't be safe even in his own home with his own wife. He has now been displaced, and his life has been completely thrown into chaos. I mean, you just imagine one day you have to leave your home and you realize you can never go back there. You can never go back. So where do you go? What do you do? Who do you turn to? And with that crisis in the background, this is the way that David prays. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. A vivid word, bloodthirsty. That's, that's what's characterizing Saul and his minions right now. They're lying in wait for David, verse 3 says. They're stirring up strife against me, he says. Have you ever had someone stir up strife against you? Think about that. They just, they just couldn't leave you alone. They just had to do something or say something to make your life a misery. It was so unnecessary, so undeserved, and yet it was so destructive. You may have been treated that way before and you... And if so, then you know how trapped and powerless and helpless that can make a person feel. One important theme that emerges there in verse 3 is that David, in this case, is an innocent sufferer. An innocent sufferer. And this is a big theme in the Psalms, innocent sufferer. Um, in, In the big picture, in the grand scheme of things... Of course, we could say that there's no completely, totally innocent sufferer, except for Jesus, right? So we're all guilty in Adam. We're all sinners by nature. We've all actually committed sins. And so if it comes down to what we actually deserve, well, we all deserve much worse than what we get, right? Um, Only Jesus is, in the most complete sense, a totally innocent sufferer. And indeed, this theme of the innocent sufferer in the Psalms finds its fulfillment, ultimately, in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. That's what all this is pointing to, the suffering of the son of David. And yet, it's not that David is saying something that's not true here when he says that he's innocent. You can be a sinner, um, but still be an innocent sufferer in a, in a kind of relative, qualified sense. You can, you can be a sinner, but still, for example, be acquitted in a court of law of a crime, of a particular crime that you just didn't commit. So I'm, I may be a sinner, but I didn't do that. <laughs> um, that particular sin I didn't do. That, and, and this particular hostility from this particular group of people I, I, I don't deserve. Um, this is truly unjust, even though I am a sinner, speaking more broadly. So David here is talking about this particular suffering, undeserved in that narrower sense, where nothing he had done, there, there's nothing he had done to Saul. There's, there's nothing specific that Saul could point to and say, David did this thing wrong, and therefore David must die. 
There was nothing David had done deserving of death in his relationship with King Saul. Interestingly, the fact that he's an innocent sufferer makes his position really all the more helpless, doesn't it? See, if you've done something wrong, then you might think, well, maybe there's something I can do to fix it. Maybe there's something I can do to make up for it, to make amends. Maybe I can apologize. Maybe I can mend fences somehow with this person. But if you're an innocent sufferer, if Saul knows from the very outset that David is innocent, and yet he's trying to kill David anyway, well, then what is David supposed to do about that? There's nothing that he can do. There's nothing for him to fix because he hasn't broken anything. And so he is completely helpless. He has no recourse. There's no natural way of resolving this breach with King Saul because it's not based on reason. It's not based on justice. It's based on Saul's irrational jealousy, suspicion. And so out of this helplessness, when he has no earthly recourse whatsoever, David turns where? He turns to the perfectly just one, the perfectly compassionate one also. And that's the Lord. And he says, awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Um, Now, it's interesting, I think, that he mentions the nations here. I thought we were talking about Saul. Saul's an Israelite, so how does this relate to the nations? Um, I found this very helpful in uh, Derek Kidner's commentary. He brings up an issue of, a bigger issue of how we interpret the Psalms here. Um, Pointing out that Although this psalm is connected to a particular moment in David's personal history as an individual, this psalm also is designed for Israel, not just for David. Through David, it has this broader application to Israel as a nation. And so when the Israelites would pray or sing this psalm, they wouldn't be thinking only about David's personal story. They'd be experiencing the way these prayers of David expressed their corporate experience as a people. These are the prayers of Israel, not just of David. And Israel as a nation was surrounded by hostile nations, just as David was surrounded by the agents of Saul. So in other words, we could say this psalm is about David, but it's not just about David. And it's really important that we understand that when we make application from the Psalms to Israel, when we make application to the church, when we make application to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we make application to ourselves personally in our own uh, personal Christian experience. When we do that, we're not making some kind of sort of free association. Um, uh, we're not doing some kind of like reader response. Oh, what does this Psalm mean to me? Well, it meant that back then, but now what does it mean to me? That kind of very postmodern way of reading things. No, that's not what we're doing when we apply the Psalms to ourselves or to Israel or to Christ or the church. What we're doing is we're drawing out the meaning that is in these prayers of David for the people of God as a whole. The meaning is really there. As they were originally intended, these prayers are written not just as the personal prayers of one man, but the prayers of this one man, David, as the representative of the people of God. Remember, David is not just kind of average believer. 
He's David the king. He's the anointed one who has this role as a mediator between God and the people of Israel and who represents God to them and who represents the people to God, just as Christ does for us in an even higher, more complete sort of way. The Holy Spirit inspired David through his personal experiences to give voice to Israel's corporate experiences and to the experiences of individual believers, to the experience of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and to the experience of the church. So um, that's kind of zooming out for a minute to, to think about this broader idea of how we read and interpret and pray and sing the Psalms. So I hope that's helpful to think about in general. And uh, all of that kind of jumping off from where it says, rouse yourself to punish not just Saul, but all the nations there in verse 5. So just bring us back to where we got off on that rabbit trail from. An important one, though. Um, but I want to bring us back now uh, to this particular, to the particulars of this psalm and this story. Uh, taking up this middle section, verses 6 through 15. Okay. I said earlier, this the central image of this psalm is uh, these dogs howling and prowling around the city at night. So apologies to all of the dog lovers in the room. Um, I just got to meet the Rose's new puppy the other day, Daisy. Very cute, very cute. And uh, if you might, you might think, if you have Daisy in your mind, <laughs> or even Ellie, when you read the psalm, um, then you're going to think, I don't get what David's talking about here. This doesn't sound so scary. Uh, dogs are all cute and they're lovable and they're affectionate. What you have to understand is that's not the kind of dog that David has in mind here. Israelites did not keep dogs as pets. They just didn't. You didn't do that as an Israelite. Uh, it was just culturally not something people did. Um, dogs to the Israelites were wild animals. They were wild animals. And they were, but they were wild animals who didn't just live out in the countryside. They would roam city streets as well. They were like wild animals, but living in the city streets. Think of the way we would think of like a, a stray cat, uh, kind of wildly roaming around the alleyways. But imagine if there were dogs doing that too. Um, that would be kind of scary, right? Um, you remember in Second Kings chapter 9, when the wicked queen Jezebel dies, the body's thrown out the window, and then it's... Kind of gross, but her body is eaten by the dogs before she can be buried. It's that kind of grotesque, repulsive kind of feeling that people had about dogs. Um, and, and you, well, you know that even today, when a dog is not well-trained or when it's not under control, dogs can still, today, be pretty scary and they can really harm people. We just had a prayer request about that a couple of months ago. And so you imagine these wild dogs. Think of, like, dingoes in Australia. Um, but they're prowling around the city streets at night. You would not want to get mixed up with a pack of these dogs at nighttime in Jerusalem or whatever other city you might choose. That would not be good for you. And so um, David is saying that is what it feels like. That is what it feels like for, date, for Saul's henchmen to be watching my house and waiting for me to come out so they can arrest me and have me killed. It's like being hunted by a pack of wild dogs. Another thing you see in verse 7 is that they're doing this with impunity. Who they think will hear us. Uh, it's very much like what we talked about this morning from Zephaniah chapter 1. The people who think, ah, oh, God's not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything good or bad. Things are just going to keep going along the way they've always been. 
Um, I talked a few weeks ago about the whole notion of practical atheism, about living as though there is no God to see you or to hold you accountable. And that is how Saul has been living recently. He and his men are living out a practical atheism in the way that they're treating David. Of course, the problems we talked about with practical atheism, it's just that it's completely out of touch with reality. It always comes up hard against the way things really are. That God does see. That God does care. And that God is going to act on his people's behalf. So I love the way that David responds to this terrifying image of being hunted by this pack of dogs in verse 8. When he says, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. See, it's not just that God is somewhat more powerful than David's enemies. It's not just that, you know, oh, it's going to be close, but I think that God is just going to eke out a victory this time. Like a three-point swing or something like that. Um, the, 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 The power of Saul and the power of the Lord are not even on the same scale, right? This is that reality confronting that folly of practical atheism. This audacity that these enemies think that they can get away with what they're doing to David is just ridiculous when it comes right down to it in the grand scheme of things. You can hear, I use the word ridiculous, inside it you can hear the word ridicule, right? And that's what the Lord is doing here in verse 8. It is laughable what Saul and his men are doing, not though because it's funny, not because it's comical. It's laughable because it's ridiculous. It's laughable because of that gap between reality, the way things really are, and the way these people see themselves. That gap is so wide, it's laughable. Remember, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And so once again, just like in the... um, much more famous Psalm 2, where God does the same thing. Remember, he who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. Why? Because as it says in Psalm 2, it's the same reality going on here. For I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The Lord has anointed David already by this time in his life. And there's nothing that Saul can do to be able to overcome that plan of God for David's future. Um, Verse 11 is pretty interesting, especially when you compare it with other imprecatory psalms. Uh, Because in this case, um, David is not praying for his enemies to be killed. In fact, he says, Lord, make them totter, bring them down. Yes, but your people need to be able to see these defeated enemies as an example an example we can point to and say, kids, look, this is what happens when you live as though God doesn't see. When you choose to set yourself in rebellion against your creator. So David wants them to survive so that they can be an example God's point, people can point to to learn this lesson and not forget because the threat has been completely removed and is completely a memory. Um, notice, by the way, how God-centered verses 11 to 13 are. 
This is not about David wanting his desire for personal revenge satisfied. That's important. This is about him wanting to see God glorified, God known, for God's people to know the truth, um, for one thing, but also for his enemies, for his enemies to know through their defeat, verse 13, that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. The Lord is going to leave no doubt about who is sovereign. Who is God? And that's really the ultimate purpose of the judgment of God. It is, in the end, the same as the ultimate objective of all things, which is the greater glory of the Lord. For God's glory, his justice, his righteousness, his sovereignty to be openly revealed, both through the salvation of his people and through his judgment on his enemies. Verse 14, of course, that word picture of the dogs prowling around the city comes back again, kind of like a a refrain. And again, I'm reminded of that picture book I described for you earlier. First, those encircling wolves leaping with those open jaws, and it seems like it's all over for poor Adam Raccoon. But then he sees that change come over them. And those encircling wolves start to cower away. They are overpowered. The danger is just melting in the presence of the mighty lion who has come to Adam's defense. And all that is needed to keep Adam safe is just his simple presence, that he is there. That is the kind of deliverance that David is praying for in this psalm. And he's looking forward in the end, as we come to verses 16 and 17, to responding to that deliverance with worship. That's where what the last two verses are. They, we've heard David's prayer in distress. We've seen his need for protection from the dogs. And now at last we get to hear his praise for God's deliverance. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. I'm not sure there's very much new for me to say here that I haven't repeated many times in other similar psalms that end with this kind of praise for God's deliverance. I would mention, uh, just point out that David mentions twice here the steadfast love of God, that Hesed covenantal faithfulness and loyalty that I've told you about so many times. That is what God is like. It's because of who God is. It's because of God's unchanging character that David now can trust God to help him. And then beyond that, he looks forward to worshiping God when the deliverance comes. Now, you may have wondered how all of this relates to the New Testament reading I chose for tonight from Luke 23. I chose that New Testament reading because in it, you can see um, not only the suffering of Jesus, body and soul, on the cross. It's not not just the physical intensity of crucifixion, the agony of experiencing the condemnation of God against our sin in our place, as that chapter goes on to describe the crucifixion itself. The reason I chose is because you can also see in that chapter the people 
surrounding Jesus with mockery and scorn all during that time. All the people seeking his death, piling on, the crowds shouting, crucify, crucify him. Later you hear the soldiers mocking him, even one of the criminals crucified next to him, railing against him out of his own agony. See, it's there in the passion of Jesus Christ, and especially on the cross, that you can see most clearly, I think, that innocent suffering we were talking about earlier, the innocent suffering of God's chosen and anointed servant, the son of David, surrounded as though by dogs. Everybody around him, it feels like, is prowling and growling and seeking his life. You see, in the Lord Jesus, you also see displayed this confidence, this trust that David, his ancestor, places in the Lord in Psalm 59. And you see also in the end, in chapter 24, the deliverance that Jesus experienced in the resurrection. See, it's in Christ that we pray this psalm. And when we pray the psalm in union with Christ, we pray it knowing that Christ himself knows what it feels like. Christ knows what it feels like to be hunted by the dogs. And yet, in the end, to triumph over them and to worship in gratitude for that deliverance. And so when you feel like those same dogs perhaps are hunting you, when you feel surrounded by that ring of those snarling and ferocious jaws ready to spring on you, tear away your hope and your joy and even your very life. It is his hand, the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, your crucified and risen Savior. That you can learn through this psalm to feel wrapped around your shoulder. You can see the reality that this psalm describes as it pulls back the veil. That all of those encircling threats around your life are not as ultimate or as powerful as they seem. Or as they want you to think that they are. And you can begin to picture them shrinking away, cowering and melting away before that overwhelming majesty and gracious power of your Savior Jesus, who has overcome them all in his own experience in his death and resurrection, and who now is in that position of supreme power and authority at the right hand of God, from which he is more than able, it's not even close, to protect you from all evil and to bring you safely through the very worst that this world can muster against you. So that in the end, you will be able, like David, to sing of his strength, to sing aloud of his steadfast love in the morning because he has been a fortress to you and a refuge in the day of your distress. Let's pray. Our God, 
thank you for all the psalms. We also thank you for each of them. And for some of those particular word pictures that you give us to get into our imaginations, to see yet another beautiful facet of your loving care, sovereign, almighty power to come to the defense of your people and to deliver us from evil. We ask, Lord, that for all those gathered here who have in the past experienced or are experiencing now or may in the future experience that feeling of dogs circling around and hunting them and ready to spring, Lord, we ask that you would defend us, that you would deliver us, that you from your heavenly throne would laugh at them and hold them in derision so that we might sing of your strength, sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning because you are our fortress and a day of refuge in our distress. Lord, our strength, we sing praises to you for you, O God, are our fortress, the God who shows us steadfast love. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our King and Savior. Amen.